0: You're listening to the Sojourn Church Midtown Sermon Series, Refocus. The sermon series aims to answer the confusing questions we have been left with since the COVID-19 pandemic. The Refocus series is rooted in four passages from the book of Hebrews and helps remind our people of the supremacy of Christ and the renewing power of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 13:1 through 3, and verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, family. It is a joy to be with you. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of your pastors. As you see, we're going to be in Hebrews 13. And what we're doing today is we're we're wrapping up our series called Refocus. Refocus. Uh, it's a whole series that we're seeking to help refocus our lives in the midst of a pandemic. And I say in midst. The first time I wrote it, I was like at the end of, in the midst of. I'm not sure exactly how to articulate it, but it's a hard season, okay? You're probably tired of someone reminding you of that. You want to come and be like, listen, let's not talk about it. I have to talk about it because the Word of God applies to it. Uh, it's been a difficult season. And I want us to be able to, to think about that and to sit in that for a moment, the fact that our, many of our lives have been radically altered by job loss, or maybe social isolation. You experienced isolation. Maybe you continue to experience isolation. Maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one. If that's the case, I'm sorry. It's, it's an extremely difficult thing to experience. Or maybe something else has happened. But I want us to slow down and in this series, as we've continued to, and re-examine our lives and realize that we need to refocus on what matters, If we don't stop and recalibrate our rhythms around Jesus and around the things that he cares about, we will find ourselves at a place, in a place we don't want to be, um, but very far down that path. So let's slow down and let's think about uh, what does it mean to refocus so that we're not disengaged from the church, that we're isolated from godly friends, and so that our love toward Jesus and toward others doesn't grow cold. And as your pastors in this series, we've had one prayer, and that one prayer is when we think about refocusing today, we're specifically thinking about re-engaging. We want you to take one step toward being a gritty disciple maker when passion and perseverance meet. One step in your walk with Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning from all kinds of places and and all kinds of seasons, Father, pray that you meet us. Father, we know that you are here. We know the theological truth that you are omnipresent. You are present in all places, Lord. But if I'm I'm honest, if I confess to you, sometimes it feels like you're absent. Sometimes it feels like we're alone, Lord, and we long to feel you, to experience you. And Father, as we sit together as family, as we sit under your word, as we worship together, may we experience you in deeper, sweeter, And richer ways. Lord, help us take a a step toward you, a step toward this church, and a step toward our life on mission for others. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So about this time, it's actually really close to this time, in 2008, that's a long, long time ago, uh, my wife and I first stepped through the doors of Sojourn. I remember very clearly we were in a different building. We walked in the doors. There were greeters. So if you're on the Next Step team, our Connect team, thank you. Uh, your hospitality has meant the world to our family. We walked in, we were greeted, we felt uh, warm, we felt like it was a family. I remember that first day at Sojourn because during the greeting time, it used to be really long, like kind of awkwardly long. You're like, I'm new here, this is getting kind of awkward. And I remember two uh, ladies, two single ladies were, were sitting in front of us, so they were standing because we were greeting, and they turned around, they're like, hey, what's your name? And my, my wife and I had been married for three months at the time. And we introduced ourselves and they're like, hey, do you go to a community group? I didn't know what a community group was. I could pick it up from context. It's probably a small group Bible study. They're like, Once you come to our community, we'd love to have you. And we took them serious. I was like, okay, well, where is it? Where does it meet? That week we went to community group. We were welcomed and deeply. Listen, we had just come off the mission field. We'd experienced community, we were living our life on mission, and something happened in community group where I was like, man, these people are serious about living life together as a family. Someone opened their home, they welcomed us with food, we sat, we did life together, they asked us questions I was really uncomfortable answering, I was like, I don't even know you people. But they welcomed us into the vulnerability of life in the church. And that experience kept us at sojourn. We stayed and later we on staff and I came a pastor. But our journey with the church began in experiencing hospitality, experiencing welcoming on a Sunday morning and in CG. And when we look at the last chapter of Hebrews, what we see the author doing is he's unpacking some final instructions before closing the letter. And one of those instructions we'll get to in a minute is the call to be hospitable. But he has all kinds of other calls, these short statements, right? It's like when you say goodbye to a friend at the end of a conversation, you're like, whoa, wait, wait, I have just one more thing. And that one more thing turns into like five quick things. You just got to tell them real quick. That's kind of what the author is doing here. He's like, wait, I just got a few things that I just want to tell you. In fact, he has 15 different instructions (laughs) that he gives his listeners. I want to share a few with you. Number one, keep your life free from the love of money. Oh, he's getting deep quick. Number two, be satisfied with what you have. Remember your leaders and imitate their life, imitate their faith. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. And lastly, don't neglect to do good and to share, to share what you have with the body of Christ. And in our time this morning, I want us to focus in on three of these 15 short instructions to help us shape the Christian life. Things that help teach us what does it mean to be a gritty disciple maker? Remember, where passion and perseverance in life meet for a believer. What does it mean to be a gritty disciple maker when we show love to those around us through sacrificial service? So, this morning we talk about reengaging the church. For many of us, COVID and all the realities of all kinds of things have kind of pulled us away just a little bit, right? We're just isolated just a tad bit, or maybe a lot, and we're calling you back into deeper engagement in relationship, in life, and in service. So being a greedy disciple maker means we love those around us with sacrificial service. And the root of our sacrificial service for others does not start with good intentions, although I want you to have good intentions. Those are good. It doesn't start with our self-effort or trying. No, the way we serve the church and we serve those around us, the world around us, must flow from our relationship with Jesus and from our love with one another. The way we love and we care for one another, the way we serve one another must root itself in our Love relationship with Jesus. Because here's the deal if that service, if that sacrificial service, if that giving up, if that making life choices for the sake of the kingdom is not rooted in Jesus, it won't last. All good and lasting service in God's kingdom is rooted in love. Look back in verse one. This is what the author is doing here. Uh, I love how the New Living Translation phrases it. He says, Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. There's this urge to continue, be faithful. Church, you're doing it. Continue to love one another. And what verse one does is it sets the stage for all of chapter 13. Out of this love, here are more things to do as a response to this love. Our love for one another rooted in Christ is what drives us to live the Christian life. The love that's written about here in Hebrews is more than mere emotion, most of us have probably experienced, right? You get the, the puppy dog eyes, you fall in love, you have this emotion, which there's nothing wrong with that. But the love we're talking about in Hebrews 15 is more mature. It's deeply rooted. It, goes, it branches out farther because love works itself out in concrete action. Love must be more than mere emotional experience or it's not love at all. Think about the way um, you love your kids. Let's, some of you here have kids, right? Uh, most of us have some sort of sibling probably. Imagine this scenario, it's the middle of the night, you're dead asleep, it's dark, and in an instant you hear, ah! And you wake up and your kids are screaming or your siblings are screaming, your brother and sister, and they're screaming, mom, dad! And in that moment, what do you do? What's your response? You, what you do is you take a deep breath, and you begin to reflect on all the ways you love your children, how wonderful they are, how sweet and kind they are. No, you get out of bed. You run as fast as you can. Hope you don't stub your toe. You run to them. You wipe their tear and you meet their need. And you're like, well, of course you do that. You know why? Because love works itself out in concrete action. Love, when it hears a need, it runs in response. And that's what the author of Hebrews 13 is calling us to. To let brotherly love continue means to love other Christians with practical love. Love worked out in concrete action. It's a love that perseveres, moves forward in the midst of opposition. It's a love that keeps on loving. Why? Because love worked out in action is the kind of love given to us at the cross. Jesus is both our model and our means of love. His love for us is more than sentimental feeling. His love literally drove him to take on flesh. To, to move into poverty, to rub shoulders with you and I in this world. And ultimately, it led him to die a sacrificial and painful death that we deserved. Why? So that we could experience life. Loved, lived out in a sacrificial way. The love that flows from the cross is a love that not only displays an action, but it's experienced by us. If you want to understand how to love your brothers and sisters in a fallen world, Just look to the cross. Get your head out of the sand and look to Jesus. Jesus, how? How? How can I do this? He is our model and our means. Look and see a love lived out in pain and in sacrifice and is relentless in pursuit. In pursuit of what? You. Relentless in pursuit of you. He pursued you to the nth degree so that you can experience his love. Love that flows from the cross is a love that asks nothing, but it gives everything. The love of the cross is the very love that changed us and empowers us to affect change in the lives of others. We affect change in the lives of others. How? When we experience love, lived out, in sacrificial sacrificial action for others. The love of the cross is the frame and the fuel for our sacrificial love. Look at 1 John 4, 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists of this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. The scriptures ooze love on display because we have experienced the love of God, then what? We move out in love toward one another. And our passage today shows us two ways that we can practically live out love in concrete ways. First of all, we open our lives and our homes in hospitality toward others. Look back in verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. A clear and practical way to show love to those around us is through generous hospitality. But what is hospitality? Hospitality is the opening of our lives and our homes in a way that provides refreshment to others. I love that, refreshment. Have you ever experienced being welcomed into someone's life, into their home in a difficult season? You're sitting on a couch, you're eating a meal, you're drinking a cup of coffee, and you just realize, this is enjoyable. I'm experiencing love by being invited in. You were a recipient of hospitality. Hospitality is is not mere entertainment. It's more than fellowship. And it's not simply the gathering of friends. Hospitality is the act of opening our doors, welcoming in and sharing what we have with expecting nothing in return. Hospitality allows us to see that what we own is a gift to share, not a possession to protect. Built within us is this like hoarder. I don't know if you experienced this, right? Like you earn and you save and you build and you protect and like this is, we're building these little kingdoms. But what hospitality says is what you have is simply stewardship, be it little or much. You steward gifts that have been given to you to share with the kingdom of God. Everything, everything, your paycheck, your home, your car, your children, your friends, the person that you love. Those are all stewardship opportunities, hospitality was an important practice of the early church. As you read the New Testament, you're going to see hospitality pop up over and over and over again. And it's really challenging because every Christian was expected to steward what they owned for the greater good of the community. Often in the the early church in the kind of first and second century, uh, missionaries and evangelists and Christians would travel from city to city, town to town. It was a very mobile society. And they would enter a town and Uh, Kind of the options were you could go to the seedy hotel where where bad stuff happens, right? Or you could ask around, find a Christian, and be invited into their home. And it became not only an expectation given to them, but it became kind of a love language. Like we're inviting in. This is the way we show and express love. I remember um, experiencing this when I was a missionary in Nepal. I would travel up into the mountains with my national friends, and we would share the gospel, we would uh, try to find Christians and encourage them. But more than one occasion, we would go into a village that we'd never been into. There might even not be a Christian. Maybe there was. And it would be toward the end of the day. There's no restaurant, no inn, no like hotel. And we'd be welcomed into a home. Oh, come on in. I'll serve you food. And I realized really quickly, we're being served out of the poverty that they had, right? Like the widow's might. And then They made a a space for us. They gave us a bed or a floor on more than one occasion. I remember taking a team of seven volunteers. We would go up in the mountains, share the gospel, uh, encourage believers. And we got to a place and we actually asked for a hotel. There's no hotel. I'm like, okay. So we literally just knocked on a random door. Hey, could we stay with you? Of course. Come on in. The lady cooked for the nine of us. There was like seven volunteers and me in a national Cooked for nine of us. We slept on her floor. And the next morning, I tried to hand her some rupees, some money. And she's like, it was offensive. Like, don't give me money. This is part of my culture. Like, I want to show you love and show you like that our village cares for visitors. And to me, I was like, oh, that's what was happening in the New Testament. Going from village to village, and especially believers, they would show and experience hospitality with one another. Open their homes, whatever they had, be it little or much. And that same expectation of generous hospitality has been given to you and I. Well, Pastor, you don't, you don't understand, like, I don't have much. I don't even have a home. I, like, I share a house with, like, three people. That's okay. You can be hospitable. You can be hospitable with what you have. Romans 12, 13 encourages us. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. There's a really important word in there, <laughs> Always. There's a spirit, a lifestyle of hospitality that we as Christians are called to have. Now, let me be clear. This is not necessarily easy because hospitality requires you to open yourself up to vulnerability, right? So you may be hearing this message thinking like, oh, man, I, I can't do that. I don't do that. I used to do that. Now I don't do that. Wherever you are, this is not a condemnation. This is an invitation. How do you live out hospitality with what you have? But hospitality is is not simply having friends over. It's stepping into the real lives and the real needs of people around us. It may mean helping a close friend. Sure, you should do that. You should have friends over. Those are good things. But hospitality more often than not means helping people you may or may not know. Yeah, it sounds crazy, right? It's opening your home to someone that you barely know, but it can be a beautiful outworking of the gospel. Throughout my years at Sojourn, um, I have observed godliness around me by people who share their possessions and their home with people. I can think of multiple occasions where members and pastors have opened their homes, opened their dinner tables to people who've been abused, who are homeless, or who are simply just without family and feel isolated and they need a family. So they don't come for dinner, they come and be with family. They come and stay. Um, not to put him on display, but I remember one of the first times I met Pastor Jamal he was new on staff. I went to hang out at his house. My kids went downstairs in his basement to play with his kids. I went down there to check them on, on him. I heard something over in the corner, and I go around the corner, and there's a guy living in the basement of Jamal's house. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> well, come to find out, he's a guy in need. He needed a place to stay. He was a part of their previous church. And they opened their home, not for the night, but for a long period of time to help him get back on his feet. I was like, man, gospel on display. Pastor Jamal leading out in what it means to be hospitable. And here in Hebrews 13, the author says that when we show this kind of generous hospitality, we may even be serving angels and not know it. Now, I know you probably read that uh, this morning and you're like, oh, hold on. I don't, Ooh, the mysterious, the miraculous makes me uncomfortable. Guess what, guys? Mysterious and miraculous are all over Scripture. So, yeah, it's possible. But the author is not primarily trying to teach us that everybody you have over for dinner is an angel. That's not his point. His point is he's referring back to Genesis 18 to the story of Abraham showing hospitality to some traveling men. I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, Abraham, who was a nomad, he was literally a sojourner traveling this land, living in a tent. Um, Lot had kind of moved on to like the better land and Abraham and Sarah were living here. And Abraham's at the door of his tent. He's just hanging out watching and he sees three men come by. They're traveling to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know later in the story does not end well. But these men are traveling. Uh, It says that Abraham rushes to them and shows them generous hospitality. He feeds them a good meal. He washes their feet. He provides a place of rest. And Abraham soon learns that these men are angels and that the Lord himself is with them. It's a crazy story. But as I began to think about it, It's no more crazy than what you and I experience because the hospitality that we give those around us is even more amazing because when we serve those people, we're actually showing hospitality to Jesus. Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones one will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Friends, when we open our homes, when we open our lives, we open our possessions, and we welcome in those in need, we are welcoming in Jesus Himself. Mm. what we do for the kingdom matters, matters. But this is the kind of beautiful hospitality is not just for those in the church. Hospitality can and should be an essential way we live out the mission of God to a watching world. I love the way Tim Chester writes about this. He says, Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message, but meals will create natural opportunities to share the message in a context that resonates powerfully with those you're, what you're saying. Hospitality has always been integral to the story of God's people. So hospitality can seem big, uh, but it's more accessible than you know. It can simply mean you open your door and you open your table and you do life together. And if you do that as you love Jesus, you're gonna be living on mission. Because the life of the church, hospitality has been a way that we have loved each other and we've loved the world around us for centuries. Hospitality allows us to put on display the power and the outworking of the gospel that can only come with a life lived for Jesus. And for most of us, our stories of salvation have been less about logic and reason and they've been more about belonging. What I mean by that is that sadly, we've boiled down evangelism to a proclamation without presence to declaring truth without sharing our lives. We somehow think that if we can just like declare some like bullet point truths and like eject from the conversation, that that is somehow living evangelism. God never intended us to do that way. We're to live holistic lives of proclamation and demonstration of gospel plus presence. And when we try to dichotomize those two, we're creating a really unhealthy dynamic that's potentially destructive for the church. Yes, we declare the gospel, but the gospel finds its best soil for growth around a dinner table or sitting with someone who suffers. I've experienced this kind of shared life through the stories of baptism here. So I've been a believer now for 30 years, which is crazy, right? 30 years. This year is like I celebrate my spiritual birthday. And I've seen lots of baptism. I was baptized myself, but I experienced something new when I came to sojourn a different kind of baptism. And what I mean by that is sojourn was the first place that I heard a, a written testimony, I heard it, and uh, a, a baptism, a, a community baptismal. So you'll hear a testimony read, and then together we reach out our arms and we say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you, my sister. And then they go under the water and they come out from, from death to life, and then this place goes bananas. Woo! Right? Right? Because we feel it. We're like baptizing her as a community. And as I've been listening to these testimonies for years and years and years, I hear a common thread in most, not all, but most of the testimonies. And there's a common thread of people meeting Jesus in community with others. One person gets baptized and it's, hey, I was dr- driving a truck with a Christian and they began to share the gospel with me at my lowest point and I met Jesus. Or I was invited into a community group and I didn't really like Christians, but I was lonely. So I saw what it meant to live life and share life and in the highs and the lows. And in those moments of community in CG, I met Jesus. Stories go on and on and on of everyday members living on mission and community with others. And if we want to be a church that makes Jesus known far and wide, then we must be a people that share life with others. Now hear me, I didn't say we share life with safe people or people who are reciprocal in our lives. I say we share life with messed up, broken, and frail people, just like you, just like me. We don't couch ourselves in protection and then live on mission. We live on mission and we trust in Jesus, whatever the cost. If we want to be a church that leads others to Jesus, we must be committed to generous, sacrificial hospitality. So let me ask you, what could hospitality look like in your life? It's a question to wrestle with. Number one, maybe inviting in a neighbor and share a meal. Someone who you, co-work, you work with or a neighbor and you know, maybe you've learned their name and you're like, I want to take that next step. And you open your table and share what you have. And then you say, you know what? I'm not going to do it once. I'm going to make it a habit. I'm going to create space in my food budget. We're going to buy an extra chair. We're going to shove in. I don't know if you've ever been to my house. We have a little house and a table and people just like pack in, right? Shoulder to shoulder. That's what we have. That's, that's the space that we have, and we try to maximize it. You can do the same thing. You could also allow someone to sleep on your couch. Maybe you have a friend or someone in CG who's down there, like loses a job, separated from their spouse, whatever it is, and you say, I don't have much, but I have a couch. You can sleep on it. That's hospitality. Or maybe it's serving an adoptive and foster family here in this church. You know, we have over 25 families who have adopted and fostered, and we have even more who serve them and care about them and advocate for those who are marginalized. Now, I get it. Uh, Our adoptive and foster families are messy. We are an adoptive and foster family. (laughs) We're a messy family. But you can step in by entering their lives. Hear me, enter their lives. Step into the mess. Just show up, say, hey, can I help you do laundry? You might want to know them a little first before you want to mess with their laundry. But jump in, how can I help? mow their lawn, play with their kids, engage with the kids, learn their kids' names. That's how to serve our adoptive and foster families. That means showing hospitality with your life. Maybe it means creating a regular rhythm, having college students and internationals into your home or inviting them into your holiday traditions where many of them don't have a place to go. Or for you, it might mean committing to journey with one of the more, more than 700 Afghan refugees who are going to be in our city in a matter of weeks. So if that's something that you and your community group want to jump into, you can email me or Rebecca Ramirez, um, and we can point you to how to get into the process to begin to welcome these refugees and serve them. There's all kinds of ways that you can live that out in your life. How do you serve those with what you have? Hospitality is a wonderful way for us to live out what we believe about the gospel. It's a way for us to love the church and to love non-Christians, but it's not the only way we can live out love. Another way we live out love is we journey with those, we remember those who suffer. Look in verse three. Remember those in prison as if you yourself, as if you were there yourself. Remember also being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your bodies. Friends, suffering and persecution are realities of the Christian faith. They have been since day one. We have always been a suffering people. Now We are in a relative time, an unusual time of a lack of suffering or limited suffering as a US church. Now, I'm not saying you don't suffer. I'm not saying we don't face spiritual warfare. But for most of time, in most places in the history of the church, people have faced physical suffering and persecution. To take up the cross and follow Jesus literally meant you're putting your life on the line. Now, I don't say these things to shame you as American Christians, that is not my point. My point is to invite you into experiencing the suffering of our brothers and sisters overseas. Those in Afghanistan who are there and continue to meet and to fellowship together. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who experience suffering and persecution for meeting together. The scriptures are littered with words to those who suffer. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That's one of the crazy things about how the New Testament talks about suffering. It uses words like blessing, reward, rejoicing, gift. Because when we suffer for our faith, we are aligning ourselves with Jesus himself. And for us, When we think about, we remember when we empathize those who suffer for their faith, we are honoring the Lord. And here in verse 3, the author of Hebrews tells us to remember those who suffer. That that word's really important. It's not a bring to mind, oh, I just remembered I forgot to buy milk at the grocery store. That's not what he's talking about here. Look back in verse 3. He uses the words, remember as if you were in prison yourself. Remember as if you felt pain in your own body. There's another translation that says, remember as if you were shackled to them yourself. The kind of, of remembering that we're talking about here is to have compassion that leads to action. It's what we call empathy. When you sit with someone and you hear their story and you feel their pain, you can feel it in your bones. That's what the author is calling us to hear. The command to recall forces us to actually align with And experience the pain of those who suffer their faith. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Because the the church here he's writing to are suffering and they will suffer. And there's a temptation for those who have been arrested. Hey, if we align with them, we're inviting suffering in. And the author says, no, you align with them. You align with your brothers and sisters who suffer. We do this as a family. That's what we're called to here. Did you know when it comes to the suffering church that there are more than 70 million Christians who have been killed for their faith in the last 2,000 years. 70 million. Open Doors is a ministry that, that serves the persecuted and brings awareness to the church in the West. And they say over half of that number has actually taken place in the last 120 years. Now, I know that's not an experience that we feel, right? But it's happening in the world around us. Just this month, an estimated 772 people will suffer violence for their faith and over 200 church buildings will be destroyed. So the stats can and they should be shocking to us. They give us pause because the church as a whole is suffering and we must move toward our brothers and sisters with empathy and action. How do, what do we do? How can we respond to that? Well, we can remember. We remember by, by standing with those who experience persecution. Even if you're not experiencing pain yourself, even if you're not experiencing imprisonment, although I will say this, there are those in the church who will step in through our doors, who have lost everything to follow Jesus. They've lost family and houses and lands. Does that language sound familiar to you? They've lost a lot. And we can, we can align with them. We can have empathy with them by uh, our brothers and sisters, by, by reading about the persecuted church, by learning more about it, by advocating for them, by writing letters to those who are in charge. But the biggest thing I think we can do is to simply pray with compassion one tangible way that you can do this is by participating in our annual underground church event. Every November we come together around prayer for the persecuted uh, day and we hear stories about the persecuted. We pray for them and we seek to encourage our brothers and sisters. And although this passage is specifically addressing the need to stand with those who suffer. It can also remind us that as Christians, we serve anybody who suffers by sitting with them, we stand for those who suffer persecution for their faith, and we sit with any believer, any non-believer who suffers in this life. Sojourn, in this church knows suffering. We've experienced a lot of it. We've lost friends too early. We've battled diseases together. Some we've won, some we've lost. We've experienced uh, battles from the enemy, spiritual warfare, over and over and over again. There's many times where it's just like, enough, enough. My family and I have have been through the thick of it here at Sojourn. God's grace in those moments has given us hope and pushed us forward. But do you know what else has given us hope? You have. You, our, our body, our friends here at Sojourn have given us hope. When our family experienced cancer, you experienced it with us. When we lost our son, you shared in our pain. When we experienced the death of two family members in a very close time, you grieved with us. Our family has experienced the love of God in this church through the concrete action of suffering together. When we suffer, you suffer. And my guess is if you've been at Sojourn for any length of time, you have a similar experience, right? Seek to live and commune with one another, be vulnerable with one another when you suffer. My my prayer is that people have rallied around you because I believe that a clear marker of a healthy church is a church that suffers well with its members. Listen, if you can't suffer together, what can you do? A church that doesn't provide all the answers, that's not what we want to be. Stand in this pulpit or in our worship songs and pretend life isn't hard, doesn't hurt. Life will always be painful until we see Jesus face to face. Our job as Christians is not to have the answer. Our job as Christians is to simply pull up a chair, grab a hand, and weep with those who weep. Be liberated, church. If you don't have the answer, join the club. But you can cry, you can listen, you can be present. The greatest gift you can give to those who suffer is your presence. Get a call friends in the hospital, something's gone bad, you know you should go, you want to meet them, you want to encourage them, you don't know what to say. Awesome, just go sit down, <laughs> just listen. One of, one of the best gifts I ever got from a sojourner was when I was, had cancer, I was in the hospital. Um, I had this one guy who taught school. He would take his lunch break every day and he would drive over to the hospital and he would sit in a chair. I can, I can see the chair, he's sitting in the chair almost every day for like eight weeks. Sometimes we'd take a nap t- Oftentimes we'd take a nap together. Sometimes we'd talk about football. Sometimes we'd talk about hard stuff. But what I remember about that act of love was not a conversation or something magical he said, but I can remember waking up from a nap one time and he was asleep. <laughs> I was like, that dude can suffer with those who suffer. Pull up a chair, grab a seat, and love those Who are hurting. Church, we can do it. We can be known as a church who suffers well. And I can think about my my time here at Sojourn over the last 10 years, and we are a church that loves people sacrificially. As most of you know, I'm gonna be stepping off staff to lead a mission organization in the next couple months. In fact, this is my last sermon as a staff pastor. Don't worry. Some of you are like, oh no. Some of you are like, okay. What was this guy's name again? Um, I'm just kidding, everybody. Self-deprecation. We're not going anywhere. I live two blocks that way. I'm going to stay as a non-staff pastor. I will be around. But this is an important moment for me and my family. We're stepping away from ministry to engage in another ministry. Um, And I I want to give you some final challenges this morning as I've been your pastor for the last 12 years. First challenge. Make it your life's goal to root yourself in Jesus. Listen, there's a lot of things you can give your life to, a lot of amazing, beautiful things. But uh, I love Jim Elliott's quote, who's a missionary who died in Ecuador He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. There's a lot of things you can do with your life. But what if we, our primary goal, our aim in life, was to give ourselves to Jesus, to, to plant roots deep into his love? and to make it our goal to experience his love more and more every day. I realize the Christian life is a roller coaster, right? But you like strap in, you're like, I'm here for the ride, and you like trust in Jesus and love him. Love Jesus with all that you have. Number two, live the relentless life. You will never regret living your life on mission for God and for others. I had a good friend once tell me, uh, his name's Caleb Crider. He said, participating in God's mission always costs us something, but never too much. Those 70 million Christians who suffered and died for their faith, it wasn't too much. There is nothing in this life that is too much to give away to Jesus. Nothing, relationship, houses, lands, anything, your very life, nothing is too much to give away. I believe this with every fiber of my being. In a moment, our life's done, and we will spend an eternity with Jesus. What is this life? What is this life? Let's not be satisfied with, as people who embrace trinkets of wealth and toys and security, when we have something so much more powerful a life to give away. Your life is yours for one reason one reason to give it away. Give it away. All of it. Everything. Everything you have, everything you want, all your desires and your wealth, give it away. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm not saying literally like, Write somebody a check and give it away, but like steward it for the kingdom. Make, take risk. Do beautiful things so Jesus can be glorified. Live the relentless life. And finally, our best days as a church are ahead. Now, there's a temptation to look back to the glory days in any area of life, or we think about the present, be it beautiful or hard or a struggle, but I just want us for a moment to think about the future. Look at all that God has done. Look at all that God is doing, and then let's imagine what God is gonna do. I think about my own ministry here. My team on the sending staff, all that they have grown and done over the years, their best days are ahead. I think about the pastors that I've journeyed with for a long time. Their best days are ahead. I think about Jesse Leitenheimer, who's coming to replace me. His best days are ahead. Church, as we give our lives away for Jesus, my prayer is that we experience Jesus more deeply, that we plant more churches, that we send more missionaries, and that we impact this city in ways we can't imagine. Did you notice what my definition of that, of success is? (laughs) Giving ourselves away. (laughs) Lastly, I want to give a word to our sent ones. It's been my great joy in ministry to be your pastor. I can't imagine, I'm trying to think about the future, right? Our best days are ahead. I can't imagine a better ministry experience than what it's been like to shepherd you. I have such deep fondness and love and respect for you but I also know that what God wants to do in us and through us far surpasses what I could ever imagine. And to Jesse Leitenheimer and Ashley, they're coming off the field from France to to take over this ministry. Um, He's the man for the job. He's been a part of our family for a long time. He's planted a church. He's led missionaries. He's pastored a church. Um, God is going to do great things. And Jesse, if you're watching, I love you, brother. I believe that your best days are ahead. But as we think about all this, what does it mean to give our life away, to refocus on the gospel and the things that truly matter? My question for you is, how can we do it? Life is so hard. There are so many distractions. How can we possibly re-engage and make a difference in this world? But luckily, the author gives us that answer in the context of this passage. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Our lives of faith, lives lived out in action in the midst of a chaotic world, those things are possible because our God is a consuming fire, unstoppable. And the kingdom he has given us is unshakable. Listen, your life may be shaken like crazy. You can't, whoa, right? But the kingdom that we have Is unshaken. And here's the beautiful thing. It's not just God's kingdom. It's your kingdom. We are inheriting the kingdom. We are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. When we lose a loved one to COVID or to cancer, when our our career plans come crashing down, when loneliness is crushing, in that moment, we can cling to the truth that our God loves us and he's a consuming fire and that his kingdom, his plans cannot and will not be shaken. Take hope, church. Take hope. Friends, we may in faith seek to love one another and we love this world because we can experience love through Jesus worked out in action to others. Let's pray together. Father, we adore you as a God who is a consuming fire, who has established a kingdom we have not yet fully experienced, but we know that cannot be shaken. Father, in this moment, as we seek to refocus our lives around what matters, to re-engage in the mission of God and the community of the church, Lord, let no excuse be sufficient. Let no trinket in life or distraction that is around us distract us, Lord. May we embrace the life given to you, given to others, bringing glory to you and your kingdom. Father, I pray for this church. I pray that we be known as a church that experiences sacrificial hospitality, that sits with those who suffer, and that give our lives away. It's in your name I pray, amen. Friends, as we focus on what matters as we pour out our life for the church, this is the same kind of sacrificial service that Jesus himself gave to us. He gave us, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it, and he reminded this is a physical representation. He, He knew we needed reminders. My body was broken so that you could experience life. He also took a cup of wine, represented his blood. My blood is shed for you so that we can experience life. So in your hand, you can grab a cup. It should be around you somewhere. You take the wafer on top, eat and remember of Christ's broken body for you. Drink and remember that Jesus's blood was shed for you. We can give our lives away because his life was given to us. Let's worship together.